And we've been looking at the walking the blameless way from Psalm 101 as a kind of a follow-on from the message I spoke at the beginning of the year about going on the narrow way. And I'm going to be in that vein, but I'm not actually going to speak from that psalm this morning. Sally was going to speak uh, the message today, and I could do that message, but actually I'm going to be bold and go off-piste and go somewhere else this morning. So I hope you're okay with that. I'm going to read you a little bit from the book of Job. In about 20 minutes, I'm going to do one of the longest books in the Bible. You up for this? 42 chapters in 20 minutes. That's a chapter every 28 seconds. Are you ready? No, yes, at least. Okay, here we go. Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. That's why we're doing this. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His son used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does God fear Job for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house it collapsed on them, and they're dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll but depart. Uh, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, the story goes on that Satan appears again before God, and says, well, I know that didn't work, but if you made Job sick and really ill, then I would be able to get him on side with me. Now, here's what's going on. You have 42 chapters in the book of Job, and because it's a long book, it seems as if this story takes forever. But it's only a few months. It's not a long period of time. And the first two chapters tell us how Satan moves against Job. And the last uh, chapters from 38 through to 42, the last four chapters, tell us what God thinks. And in between is 
a series of counseling sessions, if you like, between Job and his four friends. Now you notice people do most of the talking in this book, but God does most of the sorting out. It was always like that, and it's probably the same today. Now I want to give you a little bit of a, a run through this book as a way of looking at something in a blameless person's life. And here's the perspective. It's very fashionable today to downplay the devil, to downplay that whole side of things and just look at us and God, even in churches. Now, what happens in the book is this. Job, unfortunately for him, has not read the book of his life before this happens to him. So for him, it kind of starts halfway through chapter 1 and then moves on to chapter 3. He doesn't know or see the parts where we're told that Satan appears before God in heaven. As far as Job is concerned, he's getting on with his life the same today as he was yesterday, and all of a sudden, things get worse for him. How come? I've done nothing bad today. I've done nothing today that I didn't do yesterday. And suddenly, my life's taken a turn for the worse. What's going on? And then he goes through these chapters with his friends of trying to understand what's going on. And they try to give him their best ideas about his situation. And actually, there's some good wisdom in what they say. If you read it and take it in context that, uh, that it's kind of given in, you get some great stuff out of there, but it doesn't answer the fundamental problem. And at the end of all of this, God tells them off. He so, guys, you are giving Job the wrong counsel. And then at the end, in the last four chapters, God basically says, okay, Job, it's my turn now. Your friends have done lots of talking. Guys, be quiet. Let God speak. We'll sort this out. So this is how it works. The friends are wrong because all they see is Job and God. They don't see what's going on in this other area, and that is the attack of the enemy. And it's very important, as we understand that we're seeking to lead a blameless life, a bit like Job, Obviously in a New Testament setting, but nevertheless he was a man whose heart and integrity was towards God. We need to understand there are three parts to this thing, not two. There is God, there is us, and there is an enemy. And if we don't understand this third part, the enemy, and if we don't get to grips with that, we'll be in the same position as Job's friends. We won't actually be able to understand truly what's going on in our lives and therefore we won't be able to break through. So this morning I want to talk to you for a few minutes about how to understand the work of the enemy against a person who is seeking to lead a blameless life. Because I will say this to you, if you seek to lead a blameless life, the enemy will notice. And he will come knocking at your door. And when he does, it's important to understand that it is him and how to handle it. Because if we ignore that, we'll be like Job's friends. We will be less than we need to be and unable to really handle the situation well. Now, talking about the enemy in some church circles is a bit difficult. I came from a, a church background, which was quite okay to talk about this sort of thing, but even in my church I first started out in, not everybody was really keen on mentioning the work of the enemy. One day I was phoned up. And it was one of the elders' wives. She was asking me to do something for the children's work. But as I spoke to her, it was clear something was troubling her on the phone. And as I was speaking to her, 
I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit inside of me say this, an enemy has done this. We're going to look at it in a, little, in a moment. It's a line from uh, Matthew's Gospel, and it's a parable that Jesus teaches. Now, here's the problem with what an enemy has done. It looks like it's just bad luck. So, the things that happened to Job and his family looked like bad weather conditions. Or guys coming over the border and raiding. Do you, do you see what happened? The enemy says, I want to move against this person who's seeking to lead a blameless life. And God says, okay, I give you permission. But as he moves against them, there's nobody with a pitchfork and a tail and horns behind it saying, hey, I'm coming to get you, Job. It just looks like bad luck. If you believe in such a thing. It looks like the weather turned bad one day and the house fell down. Can you see how the devil moves? He moves in such a way as to try and disguise his activity so you don't know he's really moving against you. Now, what he tends to do, and history bears this out, is he moves against the three parts of our being. The Bible says we are body, soul, and spirit. And he will bring attacks on us in those three areas of our lives. He will move against us physically by sickness, by injury, by circumstances that pressure us in our bodies. He will move on us emotionally by hurting us with uh, past events or family issues or things like that. And he will move on us spiritually by seeking to pull down our spiritual lives and make us dull towards God and not bother to pray and not bother to read the Bible. And on all those fronts, he moved against Job. So when he didn't win on the physical attack, he then went on to the next two areas of attack. He attacked Job's mind, and he attacked Job's spirit. Now, here's some lessons you can learn from spiritual attack on Job. Number one, the main place of spiritual warfare is inside of you. Did you know that? The war takes place inside us. And there are particular times when the war gets very intense. So, because the first attack didn't drag him down, he still trusted God, he was then attacked in his health, and he was then further attacked in all parts of his being. And he was brought these ideas by these friends to his mind, and God had to tell them off for it afterwards. Wrong thinking started to pile in on him through the words of his friends. And inside, there was a crisis of faith. Can I really believe that God is this good because all this bad stuff has happened to me? Can I, I mean, it's fine to believe God is good when good stuff's happening to me, but can I believe God is good when bad stuff's happening to me? And I know some of you right now have had some bad stuff happen to you. Can you really believe that God is still good even when bad stuff happens to us? That's the spiritual attack. And the lesson is this. It takes place inside us. And when it becomes intense... It's the job of our friends to get round us and really encourage us and help us and say the right things, not like these guys said the wrong things. They were trying to be helpful, but they were only operating in two of these three areas. They didn't see the attack of the enemy. And in a sense, I don't think Job did till it was all over. I think God gave him that revelation later in life when he came to write this up. When he came to uh, write this book, he had insight from God that this is what had really happened. Now, thank God for us, we know 
this is what's already happening. We're already wise to this situation. And I want to say this to you. There is an enemy about, and he's out to get you. Now, some people interpret what happens here uh, a little bit differently than I understand the reading of the Hebrew. It goes something like this. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, what most Bible commentators say is something like this. Satan appears before God and and says, people only love you for what they can get out of you. They don't love you for who you are. And God turns around and says, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, they're, like, they're, just, they're just blessed by you. And if, if you were to really, um, you know, if you, if you look around, you find somebody that really loves you for who you are, not for what they can get out of you. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, that looks like God picks out Job from all the people on the earth and says, here's a guy you can have a go at, and I think he'll beat you. Now, nothing could be further against the theology of this book than that idea. This is what happens. God, in Hebrew, it actually says, have you had your heart set on Job? That's what God asks him. See, Satan already had his heart set on Job. He was walking around the earth. He said, I'd love to have a go at Job. But how am I going to get God into a position where I can have a go at Job? So he doesn't come straight out with it. But he always had Job in mind. God didn't pick Job out. Satan picked him out. And here's what happens in our lives. There is an enemy of our soul, and if you seek to walk a blameless life with God, the enemy will pick you out as well. And he will seek to do to you a version of what he did to Job, which is to attack you in every one of those three parts of your life and try and pull you down. And it's important that we recognize when that happens. Otherwise, we'll be struggling to try and deal with something And we won't be using the right approach because we think this is just bad luck. This is just the way life is. Well, sometimes it is, but sometimes there's an enemy behind it. Now, don't get this wrong. I was was at a meeting one day, and a guy came up to me, and he said, oh, Clive, the devil's really attacking me this week. Really? What's he been doing? He said, I got done by the police for two ball tires on my car. I said, you idiot, that's not the devil attacking you, that's God helping you to stop killing yourself or somebody else with a a reckless car. You see, sometimes people can label their own foolishness as the work of the devil. Now, I'm not talking about that, but we can go to the other end and not really see where the enemy is out to, to take our lives down. And he is. So then we get to the end of that. That's the beginning of the book. And the simple principle from there is, there is an enemy. Let me take you to that passage in Matthew 13 for a moment, because it's helpful to us to understand what's going on here. Matthew 13, 24 says this, Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the wheat, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The, serv- the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy has done this, he replied. Now, here's the thing. I said to myself yesterday, I'm going to change the message and speak on this. Do you know what happened? I couldn't sleep last night. I spent most of the night awake because I was sick. Isn't that coincidence? Or is it an enemy has done this? This is what happened to that lady in our church. On the phone, I felt this, an enemy has done this. So 
I finished the phone conversation. Next day was Sunday. I saw her in church, and I went to her and said, were you struggling in your spirit yesterday? I was fine. I said, no, I think you were struggling. I was fine. Well, I'd only been a Christian about nine months. You don't talk to the elders' wives like that, so I, I backed off a bit. So I said, well, anyway, I think an enemy has done this. Well, she resisted it. She didn't like this idea of the enemy. She didn't like this idea that there was a real devil that would really come upon her life and really attack her. Well, about two months after that, we had a visit to our church by a guy called Dr. Derek Prince. And Derek Prince was there to speak about being freed from the power of evil through being gripped by a demon in your life. Now, a lot of churches have debunked that as sort of some old-fashioned stuff. But it's there in the Bible. Some commentators say Jesus spent over 30% of his time casting out demons. It's very real in the ministry of Jesus. Well, she would have none of it. I don't believe in that sort of stuff, she said. So Derek Prince preaches for the whole weekend, and she just won't take part in any of it. It's not true. It's not real. So the very last meeting was our Sunday evening service, and I remember this one really, really well for a number of reasons, but mostly because I got to ride home in the car with Derek Prince. I had my 20 minutes with him. Yes! And I was 18, so wow. And as she walked to the door, he was at the door shaking hands with people. As he shook hands with her, The power of God hit her. She fell on the floor and all the demons started to come out in front of everybody. I'm not joking. That's what actually happened. The power of God released her. Now, I'm trying to say something to us this morning. And what's happened is a spiritual attack's come on the atmosphere in here. I don't know if you can feel it. But right now, there's an opposition. Some of you are getting sleepy. Some of you are switching off. And you don't actually want to hear what I'm saying. Because the enemy that I'm speaking about is actually attacking you right now in your thoughts and your spirit to try and push this message away from you. Can you hear that? It's happening right now. It's as real as that. Now, I want to tell you how real this is. Because this is the world we're living in. If you and I want to walk a blameless life, we have to get one over on the enemy. We have to get through. and We have to know how to get through. Uh, when I was working in Northern Ireland with an evangelist, his wife, uh, was, it was, they were telling a story about uh, one of the guys in their church. And this guy had lived abroad in uh, a certain part of the world where they worshipped statues and idols. And he brought some home as trinkets to put on the mantelpiece. And his wife had thought, that stuff is demonic. I'm getting rid of it. And so one day, while he was at work, she hoied it all in the bin. Now, in those days, this will take you back some days, we didn't have these plastic, wheelie, wussy things. We had proper metal bins that men used to carry, you know, where men were men and women were women and dustbins were made out of metal. And she took this bit, she took the stuff and she hoied it in the bin. And her husband came home from work early that day as the bin men were carrying up the bin. And as he walked down the path, uh, this strange sensation came over him. He said, all the hair on his head, on the back of his neck, stood up. And he came in and said, I just had the weirdest experience passing the dustbin, man. What's going on here? And she said, well, I've just hoied out all... Well, not hoied, because they don't talk about it in Northern Ireland. But I've just thrown out all, your, all those idols off the shelf. You see, it's as real as that. There is a real spiritual world, there is a real enemy, and he's really out to put things on you that you don't recognize as coming from him and just think, oh, well, that's just bad luck or life. But he's out to drag you down through sickness, through family issues, through uh, discouragement in your own spirit, through hurts, habits, pains, and hang-ups. That enemy is out to knock you off that narrow way and get rid of your blameless life. Well... Jesus said that when that enemy comes, he will sow seed in your field at night. Did you know that? He works night shift. We'll see that again in a moment. When you're asleep, he's still working. 
Last night, I was struggling with sickness during the night. And Jesus said that what he sows is called in the Greek language darnel. Now, that's not any old weed. It's a weed that looks like wheat. If I could show you a picture of this, you would see it looks like a poor version of wheat. But it's fruitless. You can do nothing with it. And it ruins the harvest that it's sown amongst. And listen, it wasn't just the wind that blew that darnel into the man's fields. It wasn't just bad luck that it got there. The enemy had seen, here is a man who wants to make something and grow a crop, who wants to be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to come along and ruin his work at night. And while he's sleeping, the enemy is sowing a fake weed, a fake wheat into his field. And the the trouble is, when you look at it, it's hard to pull one out with the other because you can't tell which is which. And that's how he comes to our lives. He sows false thoughts into our lives, false ideas, and he tries to get us to, to believe them. Now, let me give you an example of this. About, about a month ago, I felt the Lord speak to me and say, there are three things in life, facts, opinions, and truth. And what people want today is truth. Now, that's a strange thing, because we spend most of our time with smartphones trying to download information or fact. But you know, there is a difference between truth and fact. Do you know what the difference is? Truth is relational. Truth is about who you believe in, about who God is, about the people around you. That's truth. And you can't get truth off the internet very much. What you get there is opinion and, and, and information. Some of that not very good. But what God wants to bring to our lives is truth. What the enemy brings to our life is an appearance of truth, but it's only fact. So let me give you an example. Paul wants to come to the meeting today and prophesy. And a little voice says in his head, you can't do that, Paul, because you sinned last week. You looked at that picture of Clive on the internet as James Bond, and you laughed at it. (laughs) You made a terrible sin last week. I forgive you, my son. God bless you. Now, you see, what happens is, that is fact. But it's not truth. Because the truth is, through the blood of Jesus, he's been forgiven that terrible, wicked, awful sin. (laughs) Do you understand the difference there? The enemy will come to you with fact. You'll say, you did this. You did that. You thought that. You said this. This happened. That's fact. But it's not the whole picture. Because that has to be put alongside the truth that Jesus Christ died on a cross, was buried for our sins, and rose again. And through his blood, we have complete and total forgiveness. That's truth. Our world is full of information and fact, but it has little in the way of truth. Can you see why I'm saying that? Can you see the difference? And the enemy will come to your mind, and he will try and sow fact in there, and he will try and keep you limited to the level of fact and not let you know the truth. And Jesus says, what sets you free? It's the truth, not facts and not opinions. It's the truth of God's word and God's relationship to you. So here's the fact. I feel sick in a part of my body. Here's the truth. I died for your healing. And which are we going to believe? Which are we going to believe? Now, come on, we're in a wrestling match here. I can feel this in the spirit this morning. We're in a wrestling match. I'm trying to change your minds this morning. I'm trying to preach the word of God into your hearts and get you to open your minds and see something today because a mind change needs to 
happen here. The enemy was at work into Job, trying to change his thinking about God, trying to get him to, to readjust. God can't be that good. This is a battle for our minds, and this is where the battle takes place. And are we going to win, or is the enemy going to win? I'm driving along in the car one day. About 70, I'm going down the motorway to another city. And at that moment, the girl in the back seat opens the door and tries to jump out. I'm serious. That's an attack of the enemy, isn't it? Is that right? He's trying to destroy her life. She's got two young children. And in her mind, the enemy's placed a load of facts. You're no good. You're rubbish. You're this. You're that. You're the other. And she's hearing those things in her mind. And she's got no real heart or spirit or truth to counteract that with the word of God and with faith and with the blood of Jesus. Well, I accelerate so the door comes in a bit and we pull the door in. And I spoke to her that evening. I said, what were you doing there? She said, I just got to do this. And she'd been medically, clinically under all kinds of diagnosis and, and, and medication, but she was very depressed and very low. Now, in my best responder sympathizer, which I didn't have at all in those days either, I said, to her, I said something to her. Well, several years later, she was wonderfully free of all this stuff, completely healed and totally better. So I said to her, it's about three years later, I said, you came out of this about three or four months after we, we, we went on that car drive. All of this lifted off you. Would you care to tell me what happened? Oh, she said, that's easy. Do you remember when you spoke to me in your house? I said, yes. She said, you said to me this one sentence. You said, well, who's going to win, you or the devil? And she said, I knew then I couldn't let the devil win in my life. And that was the beginning of the end. That was the point of turnaround. And within a few months, all of that stuff had lifted off her life. See, that's the question. Now, I hadn't meant to be harsh by asking that question. I was just being my usual direct kind of self. But do you know what? To her credit, she took that word and she saw an enemy has done this. She wasn't just depressed or in some kind of hang-up. An enemy had come on her life. Her life was going well up to a certain point. She was a godly Christian woman living with a Christian husband, Christian family, just doing her best for God. And suddenly, this came on her life, just like Job. And she never spotted this was an attack of the enemy. It just appeared as some information to her. Well, maybe I am like this. And maybe I'm not such a good person. And maybe my life is like this. And maybe I have missed it. And maybe, you know, all those facts the enemy brings us when he accuses us, but no truth. Thank God. Thank God she heard that word and pulled through. And that's what we're about this morning. Now, when you get to the end of Job... In the last four chapters, God speaks to him. And this is what he says. So the first point, if you're taking points, the first point would be this. An enemy has done this. There is an enemy who does this. The second point is this. There is help. In the next few chapters of Job, God says, Job, stand up, brace yourself like a man. That's where we get that phrase from. Job was sick, weak, drained. He lost everything. And God says, right, now stand tall before me. That wouldn't be how I would want to stand. But God calls him to. He said, Job, stand up straight. I'm going to talk to you. You're going to listen. I'm going to ask the questions now, and you're going to answer me. And then he asks him a series of questions, and Job says, I don't know the answer to any of those questions. And God says, correct. You don't. You know nothing. Nada. 
You know very little of what's really going on in this world. The real truth, you may have some information, but the truth about who I am and who you are in relation to me, you don't know so much about that as, at all. And then he does this. He paints him a picture of the enemy. He says, this is what your enemy is like, Job. This is what you're up against. And he brings two pictures to him. They're both, if you like, mythical creatures that could have their counterparts on earth, but they're both descriptions of a, of a, of a terrible animal or a beast or a monster or a dragon. And you'll see that theme repeated through the Bible. That's the way the enemy gets described. And he says to Job, Job, I want you to, to understand what you're up against. Here's beast number one, Behemoth. He is a mean bit of work. He's bigger and meaner and nastier than you, and you don't have a chance against him. That's what the devil is like. And then he gives him a second beast, and he says, Leviathan. Let me, let me describe the devil to you by, by, by a picture of another beast. This is why it's used in Revelation, by the way, and in other parts of the Bible. It says, this beast is terrible. He is tearing, he is ripping, he is destructive, and he's proud. And he is out to pull your life down, Job. And he said this, he said, Job, if you try and be all big with him, he said, anyone who puts a hand on him, he'll bite it off. You won't put a hand on him a second time because you won't have a hand left. We have a picture at home of Richard stroking the back of an alligator in Louisiana. It can be done only when the animal's in hibernation, though. This, this thing's asleep. So the guy throws a chunk of meat onto its jaws, and it just sits there. Sleep. Apparently, got a brain about the size of a pea. You know, really, really dumb creature, but big jaws. So the guy then lets us into this compound, and we go and we stroke the tail of this animal. I know it was sleepy. I know it was hibernating, and I know the lump of meat was right next to its teeth, but it's still scary to go up to this big thing. This is about sort of three meters long, and you're trying to stroke the tail on this thing. And God says, that's what Leviathan is like, and he's awake. That's what the devil is like. If you go try to stroke his tail or put one hand on him, he'll take your whole arm off. So what he's saying is, Job, you are not strong enough on your own to deal with this no matter how good you are, no matter how blameless you are, no matter how good your week has been, you on your own are not good enough to, to, to deal with him. He can always turn the tables on you. He can always pull something out of the hat for you and pull you down. Job, don't even try to take him on. Let me do it for you. As long as you're trying to be good in yourself, you'll never be good enough to overcome his accusations and his condemnations. So Job, step back and let me step through. And that's where we're finally going today. Let's go to Revelation chapter 12. There is help. You'll know this passage really, really well. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain and was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. He, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child at the moment it was born. Verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. He was not strong enough. They lost their place in heaven. 
The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God for the authority of his Christ, for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Now, here we've got the same pictures again. A terrible beast, if you like, who can devour us, but God takes him on, and God sorts him out. Now, here's where it all ends up. This is a sharp end for us. This is what we spent the last 25 minutes getting you to this point here. In our lives, there are issues. There are issues where the enemy has come against us. And what happens is, we tend to get used to them and not deal with them. Patterns of thinking, habit patterns, sickness, uh, failings, character flaws and so on, and we just put up with them. And we kind of live life with a limp. We just pull this thing through life like this, and think, well, this is normal. But my encouragement to you is today, don't see it like that. Don't put up with it any longer. Realize there is an enemy who's out to get you. Whether it's a sickness, a doubt in your heart about the truth of God's word, a feeling of, of awfulness inside, fears about your family, whatever it may be, all those things come from the enemy of your soul to rob you of a great life in God. And the more we are pulled down by those things, the harder it is to walk this blameless life. And God wants to set you free. God wants to set you free. And the great news is you don't have to do it by yourself. You're not on your own in this battle. Bring God in. Now, what this ought to do is get every one of us on our knees a whole lot more every week. That's what this is all leading to. If we really understood this, we would turn off the telly and we would put down the book and we would rest the magazine and we would say no to that social event there and we would be on our knees before God seeking our healing, our deliverance, our freedom, our release and our change. And do you know what? As we do it, God will do it for us. As we cry out to him and say, God, I am helpless here. I'm in trouble here. I've been caught by the enemy in this trap. I've been got a hold of by this. I've got things going on inside of me that shouldn't be going on inside of me. Help, what do I do? They seem more powerful than I am. God's saying, okay, just step to one side. Let me step through and I'll take care of this, this beast for you. I'll take care of this age-old serpent for you. This one who's troubled all of humanity. This one accuses them day and night. You notice he works night shift there as well. This one who is out to ruin your life, let me deal with him. And in order to deal with him, you need to be on your knees, praying the blood of Jesus. Saying, Lord, I believe when Jesus died on the cross, his blood has set me free. I am justified. It doesn't matter how much I've messed up in the past, God can get me back on top. So many of our Christians in churches lead a kind of halfway house where they know they've fallen and they get halfway back and they're content to sit there. And if I could give you a, a modern metaphor or parable before we finish, it would be this. Um, imagine you are a great footballer, really top of your class. In, I was going to say in Newcastle, but we may not have it. Maybe we do these days, I don't know. Anyway, um, you know, you're, top of, you're top of form and you do really well and then you fall from that place. You get injured or something happens, you get a red card, you get sent off. And next thing is, you find yourself on the subs bench watching the match, but not actually on the field doing the stuff. So many Christians are on the subs bench today. And here's the mark of a great player. A great player 
is one who can come back from the subs bench. Now, let me say this to you. Don't let the devil put you on the subs bench today. Don't let him say things into your life and say, I'm only good for so far. I can sit here and watch the match. I can watch the first team play and sit here. Maybe I'll get five minutes. If, if. But do you know, actually, I'd rather not. I'd rather just be left here now. I'd rather let other people do the stuff and I'll just sit this one out. Listen, you're called to do the stuff. And it doesn't matter what your past has been like. It doesn't matter what the enemy has thrown at you. God is able to heal that sickness, deliver you from that habit, release you from that hurt and pain, free you from that pattern of thinking, and put you back on top where you ought to be, in the first team, right down the front, scoring where you always should have been. And the enemy will try to stop you being there, but the mark of a great player is they can get up off the subs bench and come there. And that's what this message is all about this morning. Can you do it? Can you face this head on with God's help, stand back, speak the blood of Jesus over the situation and dare to believe that God can use me and actually overcome all the work of the enemy in my life.